Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. So I was going to talk about censoring, and this will highlight some papers we've been doing recently, what keeps us busy. This is the Kaplan-Meier variety of censoring, not the Facebook variety. I'm actually, turns out I'm interested in both, actually. I'm interested in both. I've written a little bit about Facebook and social media censoring over the last pandemic. Uh, But I thought you all are probably more interested in the Kaplan-Meier variety of censoring the KM plot censoring. And so this talk, I hope, will be able to get through these three studies that we've been doing over the last five years. And uh, if I run out of time, I will cut it short. So you're all familiar with the Kaplan-Meier plot. I don't think there's any plot we've seen more of. Maybe uh, swimmers, a waterfall plot, they're all coming in, in second and third place. But KM plots are the most common plot we see. And, you know, you notice many things about it. I just Googled this. This is an image that uh, I have no idea what this expression means. I just Googled it for a representative image. So what do you see here? Well, you know, you see, you see the numbers of patients at risk over time. It's, it, it translates to the curve that they're on. There are all these tick marks. What does this all mean? So, you know, every time the curve dips, that means an event occurred. So all these little dips, almost too small to see. But over here, the curve dips. This is likely one event occurred. The numbers at the bottom show you the number of people at risk at that time point. So here, four people were at risk on the red curve, and I suspect one person had an event, so it dipped about 25% from here to the baseline. Larger steps at the end of the curve occur because fewer people are at risk, and the curve is leveraging those fewer people and extrapolating their outcomes to everyone else. Vertical ticks indicate that a patient is censored. That means that beyond that time point, we don't know what happened to that person. We know up until that time, but beyond that, we don't know. And the estimate of survival, it's an estimate for a reason, because we're estimating survival of the entire cohort, had we observed them all until the event of interest, using the information that we do have, which is people beyond the tick mark. So we extrapolate that this person who is censored, had they followed out for all this time, they would have had the same probability of the event of interest as all the people in whom we did have that follow-up. So that's why it is an estimate. And it's really kind of a maximum information harvesting. I don't know if people know this, but Kaplan and Meyer were two independent statisticians who thought of this, and they both submitted their papers to the same journal, and they asked him to pool their efforts. And that's what led to the famous KM paper, which is probably cited now nearly 100,000 times in the literature. It's got a good, good citation trail. And the key assumption of this entire method is that the censoring is uninformative. The person who enrolled two months ago, who you're censoring on month three, they are no healthier, wealthier, or wiser than the person in whom you have the follow-up. Censored patients are no different than those in whom we have follow-up, so we can assume that had they followed that long, they would have had the same probability of outcomes. 
So one thing you always see in oncology is you see overall survival, I guess like this last plot, you know, it has this smooth appearance to an overall survival curve, but PFS often has this kind of stair-step appearance. We see this so often. And of course, the reason that occurs is that overall survival is assessed continuously. You can die at any moment in time after the start, after the start time, after randomization, after time zero. Whereas progression-free survival is typically binned. It's binned in moments where you get the scans and sometimes protocols say, you know, every four weeks within three days, you know, they give you a little bit of a range. And that's why you see these stair-step patterns. This is where there's all the people getting assessed and that's why the events are all occurring at that moment. Did they progress at this moment? No, of course not. They may progress two weeks before. It's an artifact of the way in which we ascertain the endpoint. You know, one of the things I think about with randomized control trials that we don't think about so often is that you don't get all your patients on day one. Let's say the red period shows you the period of accrual of a randomized control trial. You're not getting 400 people in 2015 on day one you open your study. You're getting people trickling all along throughout the entire period of enrollment. And usually there's kind of a ramp up phase. There's the first few months a little bit slow, then finally our research teams get going and, and we sort of have a, a brisk maybe 20 person per month enrollment, I'm talking globally across CRO sites, uh, and, and then we kind of get to the end and maybe a little bit of taper down. Um, but what that means is somebody enrolled in this study three years ago, or two years ago, and somebody enrolled in this study in 2017. And when you actually make the Kaplan-Meier plot, say ASCO is coming up, and you make the plot with a data stop date of February 2018, the person who enrolled in December of 2017, well, you don't know what happened to them in month three, but you do know that for the person who enrolled in 2016. And the whole assumption of the plot is that the people who enrolled in 2016 are more or less the same as the people who enrolled in 2017. So that's why we can extrapolate that information. There's something interesting, I think, and this is what led to our work, which is that there are different reasons why someone is censored in a Kaplan-Meier plot. With overall survival, the biggest reason someone is censored in a Kaplan-Meier plot is that they just enrolled recently. They enrolled in December, we're making the plot in February, we don't know what happened to them in March, so we gotta censor them in month two. There's also loss to follow-up, but to be honest, for overall survival loss and with the, with the modern research enterprise, loss to follow-up is, is actually quite low. In an intention to treat analysis, even if somebody stops showing up to your clinic, we have good ways to find out if they died and on what day they died using social security administration records or death certificates or all sorts of mechanisms. And companies and CROs are really good at tracking death even if somebody were to abscond from the study. For progression-free survival, of course, the same reasons apply. They enrolled recently. That's a reason you'd censor somebody. They were lost to follow-up. That's another reason you'd censor somebody. But there's a third reason. There's a third thing that can happen with PFS that doesn't happen with OS. So what do you need for PFS that you don't need for OS? What is that third thing that could happen with PFS or any time to event uh, surrogate endpoint that doesn't, it's not necessary for OS? And the answer is the scan. You can be censored if you don't get the scan. You didn't get the scan. And, not, and you, you know, we, I know if you lived or died, even if you stopped coming to my clinic, but if you didn't get the scan when I needed you to get the scan, I don't know when you progressed. And that's because what is progression-free survival? Progression-free survival is a composite time-to-event endpoint. It is a time until one of four things happen. So it's like cardiology. They have the major adverse cardiovascular events, the composite time-to-event endpoint. We have PFS. We just don't think of it that way, even though it is, a, it is a mixing of four things. What are the four things? Well, of course, the patient could pass away from time zero. So if, if death is the first endpoint, that's the S of the PFS. That's a survival part. There could be new lesions on scan. Those lungs did not have anything in this colon cancer patient, I scan them three months later and they're innumerable pulmonary nodules that doesn't bode well. 
The starting lesion, you know, of course, according to Resist 1.1, we often measure three target lesions. We measure the cross, we measure the diameter, and it has a certain volume. And if that diameter exceeds 120%, which is Resist 1.1 cutoff, that is considered progressive disease. So that's the third thing that could happen. And the fourth thing that could happen is actually the tumors initially respond. And if they respond more than a 30 degree unidimensional shrinkage, it's called a response, a PR, and their growth is from the nadir value. It's not from the beginning, it's from the nadir, the smallest it ever was. So here a diameter of 84% would be considered a progression event. So PFS is the time until one of four things happen, whichever comes first. And that is, an un that is a different endpoint than OS. So the third reason somebody could be censored with a progression-free survival plot is they didn't get the scan. They didn't get the scan so they can be censored. And that doesn't happen with OS because even if they stop coming, I can track down if they died on February 22nd or something like that. I can reconstruct that. So let me give you an example. And this is a paper by, this is Bolero. This was Baselga's paper. Um, this was something that kind of piqued our interest initially. This was Everlimus in hormone receptor positive breast cancer. This is Everlimus eczemestane versus eczemestane placebo. Just a classic study in oncology. It led to the approval of uh, Everlimus for this indication. This was sort of uh, on the cusp of uh, cyclin 4,6 kinase inhibition. So we actually were kind of quite enthusiastic about this, I think in 2012 when it came out. I was a fellow at the time and I remember seeing this. This was the, this was the PFS plot. And you know, a 2.8 month PFS benefit, uh, PFS with placebo eczemestane became a 6.9 month four-month improvement in PFS, meaning PFS, hazard ratio 0.43, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We don't see hazard ratios that low. I don't know what hazard ratio is, but I know it's a low number. No, I know. I, know, I think I know what it is, but I, it is a low number. Okay, so here it is. You know, and when the more you look at this curve, something interesting jumps out to you. And if you start to look at the numbers at risk and you look at where the plot is, yeah, let me show, let me show it to you. Uh, first, let me show you, um, actually, a couple years later, a little bit of a disappointment in the Annals of Oncology, they published the follow-up study, which is the overall survival of uh, Everlimus eczemestane. It was no statistical difference. So it actually failed to improve overall survival in the final analysis of Bolero. And yet it still has this big PFS benefit. So where did it go? Where did, did it vanish? What happened to this PFS? You know, why does this happen? Why do we get PFS benefits and no OS benefits? We tell ourselves all sorts of stories in oncology why this happens. I think the biggest story we tell ourselves is that the post-protocol care was good. Like Everlimus eczemestane, that's the red arrow, and it did outperform placebo eczemestane, no doubt about that. But then we give other drugs, we may give another aromatase inhibitor, we give Taxane and Zolota, and who knows what we're giving later and later. And you know, by the end of it, it kind of, it kind of all averages out. Overall survival is the same because it is quote unquote confounded by post-protocol therapy. But if you ask me if somebody had a new energy drink and you're running a marathon and they say, look, this energy drink is great. You're going to run this marathon better. Um, and you run the first seven miles faster because you just drank that Gatorade too. Uh, but then, you know, as you drink the water, your pace slows and somebody who didn't drink that energy drink was going to finish at the same time anyway. I might wonder whether I should be spending so much money for the energy drink. So that's just the way I view it. But, you know, that's one reason people cite. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think there's another reason why there may be a PFS benefit in Bolero and no OS benefit in the final analysis. I think there's another possible reason, and that has to do with censoring. So you look at this plot, and what jumps out in my mind is that's 398. 485 people were randomized to Everlimus. It was a two-to-one randomization. 398 people were at risk at month six. But when I look at that Kaplan-Meier plot, that's... 88% in my, my, my eye. I call that 88%. I don't know about you, but I say that's 88%.
And then I start doing some math and I say, that's a 12% event rate. So 485 people, assuming a 12% event rate in the first six weeks of the study, that means 60 people experienced the event of interest in that time span. And if I subtracted 60 people from 485, I should have 426 people at risk at time point two, but I don't have 426 people. I have 398 people. I'm missing some people. Where did these people go? Where are they? And the number of people I'm missing, it turns out, are 28 people. 28 people were assigned to this arm. They're not at time point six. They didn't have the event of interest. They should be there unless they all accrued re recently, but is that possible? I'll look at that hypothesis. That's 7% of the study population. They're gone from that arm. Where did they go? And now for the rest of the Kaplan-Meier plot, we're averaging the other percent, other people, assuming they have the same rate of progression as this 7% of people that have disappeared. I look at the placebo arm. I say that's 177 people at risk at time point two. Okay, interesting. At my eye, that's a 75%. So, so then I do the same math. 239 people started in that arm. Let's say one in four had the event of interest in the first time interval. That's not so good. That's 60 people. I subtract 60 people from 239. I get 179. And as I told you, 177 are at risk. So that's pretty close. Pretty, pretty close, actually. There's not a lot of censoring in this arm. There's not a lot of censoring at this arm. So could it be that this was late enrollment on the study? And the answer is it's impossible. It couldn't be late enrollment because this is a randomized controlled trial. All the people who enrolled in the last month before the, the termination of the, of the study, they were equally allocated between treatment and control arms in a two to one ratio. If that's the reason they're censoring, there should be 7% censoring in both arms. But that's not what we see. We see less than 1% censoring in the control arm. We see 7% in the intervention arm. And so if you put this together, at time point one in the Bolero study, in the initial New England Journal publication, there's a 7% rate of censoring for people who got Everolimus eximestane. There is a 1% rate of censoring for people who got placebo eximestane at time point one. And that cannot be explained by late enrollment. It has to be explained by not showing up to the scan. Now, why didn't they show up to the scan? Why? They didn't get the scan. Okay, so that I already, blew, I already I gave you the answer. I think they, they didn't get the scan. They didn't get the scan in this, in this study. And why didn't they get the scan? I wonder if it's, it's, it's because of the toxicity of the drug, that of all the women who take Everlimus eximestane, Everlimus is a tough pill to swallow, I think. There might be some people who feel dissuaded from participating further in this study because they don't like how they feel, and they're disproportionately occurring on the intervention arm. And that brings up the question of the assumption of uninformative censoring. Did we really have uninformative censoring? Those people who are missing in the Everlimus arm, were they really no healthy, wealthier, or wiser than the people who showed up? And that didn't happen in the placebo arm. Those were just all comers, all the people who entered the study. And what I suspect is that it is not uninformative, that it is informative censoring. The women who didn't show up at visit two on the eximestane Everlimus arm were older, frailer women whom a little whiff of Everlimus made them feel so bad they didn't want to come back. They didn't want to come back to studies. This is a little bit of speculation, but I think there's, some, there's something there because it's not just me who thinks this. This is Ian Tannock wrote about this and, and Arnie Templeton uh, in a different paper. Scooped me. They scooped me. There's only two people thinking about this topic and I got scooped. Come on, that's a, that's, that's a kick in the face. That's a kick in the face. Okay, so here's what we did, but we did something they didn't do. We 
we reanalyzed the Kaplan-Meier curve. So this Usama Bilal, a very smart guy, epidemiologist at Hopkins that I met when I was there, uh, he, he digitalized the curves and he reconstructed the Kaplan, the table that makes the Kaplan-Meier figure kind of reconstructed the IPD and you can get, you can get statistical software that does that. And he kind of rebuilt the red curve is showing you uh, Everlimus eczemestane. The blue curve is showing you placebo eczemestane of this study. And what he's doing here is he's saying the entire Kaplan-Meier assumption is that the people who stop showing up at different time points, they are the same as the people who show up. But that assumption may be violated if you have a drug that's slightly toxic that actually knocks people off who are potentially more likely to progress because they're not doing so well. They're older, they're frailer, they're more vulnerable, their biology might be a little bit more aggressive. And so what he plots is a series of alternative assumptions. For this red line, the experimental arm, the solid red line is the worst case scenario. This is saying that everybody who gets censored, well, they progressed immediately after they got censored. And the dotted line is showing you the best case scenario arm, that everybody who gets censored, well, they're never gonna progress anyway for the rest of the time period. And what do you see? You see that the curves are splayed. I mean, there's quite a splay here, actually, in the experimental arm. Because there is disproportionate and more censoring in that arm, there's a, wide, there's a wideness to it. This is the range of possible Kaplan-Meier curves under different assumptions of censoring. The placebo arm, as I showed you, actually, there's less censoring in that arm, so it's much tighter. It's a much tighter fit. But what you do see is that under a set of circumstances, these curves can cross. So the best case projections of placebo and the actual worst case projections of the experimental arm suggest some crossing of the curves. Now, what do I mean to suggest? I'm not saying that there is no PFS benefit. What I'm saying is that at least some of the benefit you have measured may simply be a product of differential informative censoring that occurs preferentially in the treatment arm, potentially because the medication is toxic, more toxic than sugar pills, certainly, and that it is disproportionately pushing people out of the study who were slightly more likely to progress than the average person. And that, to some degree, might explain why there is this, this disconnect in many trials, not just this trial, I'm just picking it as an example, the disconnect between a PFS benefit and the lack of subsequent OS. It might not be confounding by subsequent therapy. It might be that the PFS itself was a distortion of true PFS. True PFS means that you really measured it in every single person, which we often cannot do. And true PFS means maybe you're scanning them every day, perhaps. I mean, if you really want to really know it with the same precision as OS. So this is Tito Foho. Many of you may know he was the program director at the National Cancer Institute for many years, maybe about a decade, and now he's at Columbia. And he was the one who turned me on to censoring because he pointed that out to me the first time. And uh, once he pointed it out to me, I became sort of obsessed with it. I was seeing it everywhere. I was seeing it in my nightmares, my sleep, I saw censoring. And then I saw it on Facebook, but then I, I saw it everywhere. And uh, Tito did something very wise many years ago. He appealed to, to this man, David Collingridge, who's the editor of The Lancet Oncology. And he said, David, the censoring is happening. It's all over the place, but we don't know it's happening because they're not putting the number of people censored at every time interval in the Kaplan-Meier plot. They're telling you the number at risk, they're showing you the estimate of survival, and we have to go with a ruler, and we're drawing all these lines, and we're making guesses about how many people are censored, like I just made some guesses for you, and you know, that's not very precise. If they just reported the number of people censored at every time interval, we'd have some data, maybe we could look at that data, and David Collingridge actually said, let's do it, we're gonna do it in the Lancet Oncology, we're gonna make them do that and give us the data, and this is what they did. They changed the, cap the Lancet Oncology. They changed it in around 2017, 2018, after Tito pushed them, and they put right there the number censored. They got it. We got what we want, number censored, every time interval in a Kaplan-Meier plot.
Oh, how fun is this? In my line of work, this is as good as it gets. It doesn't get better than this. You wanted data, you got your data. But you have to wait a while, and so we all forgot about it. We all forgot about this, it was brewing, it went on and on, a couple years he was doing it, nobody did anything about it. But then I had this, Kate Rosen, she came to my office, she's a medical student at OHSU, terrific medical student, and she said, I want a project. And I remembered that Tito had pushed David Collingridge to put this information in the plots. So I said, Kate, why don't you go collect all that information? So she went through all the Kaplan Meyer plots and the Lancet journals, the Lancet family of journals. She extracted the information at every single time interval. She calculates the percentage of people censored because we want to compare percents, not raw numbers. And, and she published this paper. Censored patients in Kaplan Meyer plots of cancer drugs and empirical analysis of data sharing. This was data sharing. We got the data we wanted and we were able to do something I think super cool. My bias, but these are the things I find cool. Here's what we did. This is, this, is, this is a set of studies, a systematic set of studies in Lancet Oncology. There's no cherry picking here. It's not the bolero. And what she's showing is this is the first or an early time point. This is an early time point in the study. And she's looking at differential censoring. Are there some studies where there's more intervention arm censoring like bolero? Bolero, I think, what was that sample size? Something like 500. Bolero would be up here, like 507% differential at time point one. If the bolero dot, bolero is not, of course, not a Lancet Oncology paper, but had it been, it would be right here. There would be a dot right where, I don't know if you see my mouse, but it'd be in that ballpark. And she sees this. This is her distribution of censoring early in a Kaplan-Meier plot, that some trials they smell a little funny. They smell like there's some toxicity knocking people out of the intervention arm. Most trials are in the middle. There's no difference in censoring between the arms at an early time point, and of course there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be much of a difference, right? If it's really a blinded study, not all are blinded, but if it's a study where people are comfortable with being in each arm and they're not dropping out disproportionately. Um, one study here, oh, this study, we'll talk about this study. This study got in a bit of trouble, and actually this, this single data point is why this drug did not get FDA approval at the ODAC. Um, but most things are here. But here's what I find interesting. The weighted average at time point one is that there is slightly more control arm censoring generally. Does anyone know why there is slightly, slightly more control arm censoring generally in Kaplan-Meier plots at an early time point? Why are more people dropping off control arms at an early time point of a study than intervention arms in Kaplan-Meier plots? Any guesses? Somebody putting in the chat. I know you know. Yes. Travis, Travis, people know they're in the control and they're not happy about it. And they're not happy about it. They're disappointed, aren't they? They're disappointed they're in the control arm and they say, to hell with this study, you get someone else to be randomized to this control arm. I wanted that interventional drug because the drug was a miracle. After all, that's what we're in the business of. So I think it is, it's patient disappointment. That is why it does that. Now, let me show you the last time point. These are late time points in a study, very late in a study. Very late in a study, there's a lot more censoring on the intervention arm. In a late, at the end of studies, there's way more people being censored in the last few time intervals of a study in, 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 the, in the treatment arm than the control arm. Does anyone know why this is occurring? This is, this is also something that you might know. Uh, also, Alan's right, I think too. The investigator's also disappointment. And so although we're not supposed to coach them out of it, I think some people do coach them out of it. I think we do. We do do that sometimes. Uh, I don't want to comment, <laughs> but we do do that. Toxicity, uh, good guess, but no, this is late in the Kaplan-Meier curve. Now you can be an optimist, Travis. Travis, you can be the optimist. I'll tell you what it is. The answer is that the drug is working. The drug is working. Actually, we do have drugs that work. Our drugs do work. And when our drugs work, 
Then in the control arm, they can't be censored because they've experienced the event of interest. But in the experimental arm, they're still on therapy, but they haven't been followed long enough because they're doing so well. And that's why there's way more censoring in experimental arms at the tail. Because we are, they're still going. They're going strong. And if you let them go, they're going to go another three months, six months, 12 months, who knows. So this, I think, reflects the fact that some of our drugs, not all, but some, especially the ones at Lancet Oncology, right? Come on, publication bias, Lancet Oncology. They're not publishing these negative studies. They like the practice changing studies, keep their impact factor 51. Uh, they're going to have some positive results in the Lancet Oncology. So I think that's why you see that. Okay. Uh, the next thing I want to show you, because I think it was fun, lutetium-177 PSMA. This was a fun, a fun study, the vision trial. And when I read this in the New England Journal, uh, uh, you know, I, I was impressed. And uh, no doubt about it, I don't want to even question, lutetium-177 PSMA, it's an active drug. This is a drug that smashes PSMA-positive prostate cancer. It will definitely have a role in prostate cancer. I don't even doubt that. It's an active, 100% active drug. This study, I got some problems with. Uh, if you're interested in these kinds of analyses, you can check out my YouTube channel. I put these little silly videos where I try to deconstruct some of these papers. But uh, in this study, of course, 831 people were randomized to lutetium PSMA. Again, two to one randomization. Maybe one of these days I'll do a talk on whether or not that makes sense. But here it is, here it is, lutetium PSMA or the standard of care. One thing jumped out at me in this study. Of course, the benefit. That's a big PFS benefit. I mean, that is nice. What's that hazard ratio? 0.4. This is good. These are good hazard ratios. And look at the OS is good too. I like this. This is good. This looks good to me. I don't have any complaints from looking at these Kaplan-Meier plots. But here's what I did see. The standard care therapies on the control arm could not include cytotoxic chemotherapy, even though many of these people didn't get Kabazzi. It couldn't include radium-223. It couldn't include IO. And it couldn't include uh, drugs like Olaparib if you have BRCA2 or BRCA1 mutations. Don't say ATM. But BRCA1, BRCA2, you couldn't get it. So what, did I, what am I to think? This is an investigator choice, but the choice is not what I want to give these patients. It's a constricted or curtailed choice. And I don't like that. I don't like my choice taken away. I like free choice and I don't like this. So I really didn't like it. And it turns out I wasn't the only one who didn't like it. After the trial started, a high incidence of withdrawal from the trial was noted in the control group at certain sites and attributed to patient disappointment. After discussion with the regulatory authorities, we implemented enhanced trial education measures. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like not the kind of education, not the kind of module I want to complete, an enhanced trial education measure to reduce the rate of withdrawal. I have enough modules, no more for me. Um, the percent of patients in the control group who discontinued the trial initially after being randomized to the control arm was 56%. That is high. And it went down to 16% after the... Um, indoctrinate, I mean, enhanced education, enhanced education to educate them. Then it went down a little bit. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, so here's that graph I showed you. Here's where vision trial is. It's off the charts. They've never seen censoring like it. This other tri drug here, this is quizartinib and AML. This was Jose Jorge Cortez's paper study. He took it to the ODAC. The ODAC voted no because there's too much censoring. When censoring is so great, you don't really know for sure how much of the PFS is just the people who who dropped out. The control arm patients who dropped out, they may also not be like control arm patients who stomach the control arm. These may be control arm patients who are, uh, uh, the ones who drop out might be richer, well-educated, better socioeconomic status, more connected. Okay, last thing, the third act. I'll wrap up. This is Timothy Oliver. He's from, from, he's in Geneva, Switzerland. He's a medical oncologist there. And actually, good news for, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how it happened, but he has decided to come to the United States and San Francisco for one year. You'll see him around if we ever meet in person in November. He'll be here one year doing some work with us. So say hello to Timothy Oliver. He's an expert in sarcoma, but all solid tumors, really. He's from Geneva. Um, he did this paper, Informative Censoring. This is the third act. 
and I will just be very quick to show what he did. There's that classic paper, Nevo Ippi versus Nevo versus Ippi, the Larkin Study, New England Journal, Checkmate 067, and it shows that Nevo Ippi, it never, it has a PFS benefit over Nevo, no doubt about that. Uh, the OS actually never quite made it to statistical significance. It didn't prove that Nevo plus Ippi is superior to Nevo than Ippi. Uh, but one of the curious things about this study was it, even though many of us who give the combo feel like it is uh, devastating for immune-related AEs, it didn't show a decrement in quality of life from Nevo plus Ippi versus Nevo. There was no decrement. But one of the things Timothy noticed is that a lot of people, they're not filling out that quality of life questionnaire. They're dropping out of that or they're being censored. They're not doing it. And so we're averaging the quality of life among the people who fill it out. And so what he has done in this paper is he re-imputes, not worst case scenario, but slightly below average scenarios to show you that under a range of more plausible assumptions, Nevo plus Ippi is actually worse in terms of quality of life than nivolumab, which we probably should have published in the Journal of Obvious Things, but in fact, it's, it wasn't so obvious. And then the last thing, this is a heat map. It's, it's hot. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated plot that I won't bore you with, but it's super interesting. Okay, closing remarks. My closing remarks are this. Um, I think, and I love you basic scientists. I love you for these pathways and I see these things and I, above my pay grade, my friends, I don't understand a single thing. And uh, you know, I never, I never knew the TCA cycle and I don't think I ever will in my life. I'm, I, have to, I have to accept that fate. But what I wish to suggest is that randomized controlled trials, which seem as if they're so simple, it's a non-inferiority study, it's a superiority study, it's positive, it's negative, I think they're as deep as this. There's, a pat there's something there. There's a lot more beneath the surface. We very rarely see it, we very rarely talk about it, but drug dosing, the statistical plan, splitting the alpha, nesting in adjacent subgroups, um, censoring people, uh, imbalances in censoring. Uh, these, this is, there's a richness there. And, and to really deconstruct a randomized trial, I think you gotta get into some of these weeds. Just like to really understand how to make drugs, you gotta know this stuff. And I don't know that, so I don't make drugs. Uh, okay, well, those are, those are my thoughts. I'll, I'll stop there. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>